Hello and welcome back to the Best of Women's Fiction podcast. I'm Ashley Hasty, a book blogger at hastybooklist.com, a college fashion and marketing instructor, an aspiring author working on a historical fiction manuscript, and as of last season, I am the new co-host of this podcast with Lainey Cameron. I am so excited about our lineup of authors this season. Let's jump right in. In this episode, Linda Cohen-Ligman and I chat about her latest novel, The Matchmaker's Gift, a book Fiona Davis, author of The Lions of Fifth Avenue and a Best of Women's Fiction podcast alum, said, brilliantly illuminates the struggle of two women, generations apart, torn between society's traditions and expectations and their own personal fulfillment. The novel bubbles with romance and love matches, yet the joys of early infatuation are deftly layered over an exquisite exploration of grief, glorious and powerful. Well, Linda, thank you so much for joining me. I am so happy to have you on the Best of Women's Fiction podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you and see you. I haven't seen you in person in a long time, so it's like very thrilling to see you in clear screen 3D-ish. <laughs> it has been a long time, probably pre, pre-pandemic, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I guess this is the next best thing until we can find time to meet together. Absolutely. Well, let's kick off by telling our readers what the matchmaker's gift is about. So can you put in your own words what the your latest novel is about? Sure. Sure. Um, This book is about a sort of early 1900s, turn of the century matchmaker, a female matchmaker living on the Lower East Side, who discovers at a very young age, when she's just a girl, that she has this sort of gift for seeing who another person's soulmate might be. So she just, the first time it happens, it's with her sister, she sees sort of like a thin line of light connecting her sister to someone else. And she practices this gift for many years. And she has a granddaughter, you know, many, many years later, who seems to have inherited this gift, but it's very problematic because the granddaughter's a a divorce attorney and very cynical about love. So that's a a difficult kind of um, talent for her to have. And And they're just records, really, of the matches that her grandmother has made. And as she goes through these records, the stories that her grandmother told her when she was younger sort of keep popping back into her head, sort of very reluctantly and unwillingly at first gets involved in this unfinished business. So that's sort of the the story in a nutshell. This is your third novel following Mm -hmm. the Two Family House and the Wartime Sisters, all historical fiction. So what draws you to write in the historical fiction genre? Honestly, Ashley, the first, my first book, I didn't know that I was doing it. <laughs> um, I wrote When I wrote The Two Family House, it was really a story that I had been in my head and in my heart for like 15 years. It was inspired by my mother's, by the house my mother grew up in, the two family house that my mother grew up in. And it was just a family story. To me, it was a family story. It was a story about sisters-in-law. It was a story about choices that they made. And yes, it was set in the 50s. But it wasn't, I don't know, I didn't, if you said to me, what are you writing? I would have said this family story about these people living in this two-family house. I, and then it's really only after the book was getting ready to come out and they 
put it on all of the places where you can find books, Amazon, Goodreads, and it was categorized. You know, someone said it's historical fiction. And I thought, oh, I guess I wrote historical fiction. I really, I honestly didn't even know. The Wartime Sisters was definitely sort of a more serious historical fiction because it was a wartime story, not about the war, World War II, but a, but a home front story. But that one was, that one for sure I knew I was writing historical fiction, right? This one is New York City, Lower East Side, early 1900s, absolutely historical, lots of historical research, but it has that thread of magical realism in it also. So it's a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of something different in this book. I love how each book has its own I don't like personality within the historical fiction genre. Like one's yeah. very much a family story. One is more of the traditional uh, sort of war time story, even though it's not about the war and then the magical realism of this one. So the umbrella of historical fiction, but like touches of other genres in each one. Yeah, it does. Thank you. Yeah, it does have that. It's writing about the present seemed really daunting to me at first when I first started to write. And I feel like my sweet spot in writing is the past always. There's something, there's a richness to the past, maybe because we're, you know, we're not living in it. And, and there's something about it that feels deeper, richer than just writing a story, you know, set in 2022, which I've never done. I've never written a modern day story. Maybe eventually I will. Um, yeah, eventually I will. I think I used to get really hung up by the technology and I thought I had to include, you know, mm -hmm. phones and computers and stuff, but really a story set in the present doesn't have to have all those things. Um, but the past definitely feels like the sweet spot for me. So. So to paraphrase Casablanca of all the stories and all the world, <laughs> what made you write this one? What was that initial spark of inspiration that led to this novel? Like so many stories coming out this year, this book was written during the pandemic. I was actually working on a different story in March of 2020 and she got sent home, college shut down. And when she came home, her roommate came home. It turned out to be a, such a blessing in our household daughter's name is Ellie. Her roommate is Adele. I was living in this like house of men. Like it was me with my husband and my son and my dog, all male. When the girls came home and I'll call them girls, even though they're young women. So when they came home from college, it was a whole different energy in the house and a whole different conversation around the dinner table. Because first of all, they were in literally in college. Like, so they were taking classes all day long and they had a lot to say, and they were used to living in, in a, they're both really bright, very driven, very academic girls. And so they were used to having dinner at night and talking about their classes. And so that's what they did. So the conversation around the dinner table was really elevated and very different. And we also started talking a lot about women's issues because here we were with, you know, women around the, the, the table. And we talked about the, some of the things they were facing within the classroom, things they were concerned about going out in the, into the working world. I was reminded of certain things that had happened to me in college and things that I had faced. And so there was that layer sort of underneath that I was thinking about a lot. At the same time, we were binge watching all the shows, right? All the Netflix shows. And one of our favorites was something called Indian matchmaking, which I was on Netflix. And Adele said, you know, my grandmother used to be an Orthodox Jewish matchmaker. 
And I said, really? And then she pulled up this article in the New York Times about her grandmother with a picture of her grandmother. It's an article like from the 60s. And there were all these file cabinets behind her grandmother because that's where all these files were that she kept of her matches. Like I thought about it for a couple of days and I just asked her like, I really kind of feel like I want to write a matchmaker story about a grandmother and a granddaughter. It's not going to be about you and your, you know, but I would, how would you feel about that? And she said, you know, like, that'd be great. You should write it. Go ahead. (laughs) So this idea of the journals, originally I was thinking they would be file cap, you know, it'd be like a file cabinet, but a file cabinet sort of an unwieldy, I don't know. The journals seemed a little bit um, more personal than, than the file cabinet, but I really do still love that image of the fi- of this woman standing in front of these file cabinets. And for a while I was like, the spark came from. That's that's how it started. I love that. And I really would have loved to have met Adele's grandmother. She sounds Me too. Yeah. Adele and Ellie, my daughter, and they were I just both I saw them both for um for Labor Day weekend. They were both visiting. So that was really fun. Oh, yeah. That's so fun. Yeah. Well you know I love history and my favorite part of the writing process is research. So I always like to inquire about an author's research process, especially since it was written during the pandemic. So what was your research process like? Were you able to travel? Did you develop any favorite resources? I couldn't travel because it was really in the, in the early stages. Um, but the, the first part of the question that I had to answer, the first sort of hurdle to get over was what time period was I going to choose? Because again, if I was going to, you know, it was a, it's a dual timeline story. I knew immediately that it was going to be a dual timeline story. And so the question is, what are the time, what time periods are we talking about? And I thought for a while, you know, should I do the 1960s and the present? Should it be in that same time period that you know, Adele told me her grandmother was working in the 60s. So let me research, let me kind of figure it out. And what I found in the course of my research was no, it has to be much earlier because there were so many fascinating bits and pieces in the early 1900s on the Lower East Side. So I knew that that, that I was going to go much further back. I found some great resources. The Tenement Museum had a great online, online resources and the Jewish Museum, the Museum at Eldridge Street, the New York Public Library, the New York Times. I love to go through just the New York Times, you know, the archives and look for things. So I found a piece, I think it was the Tenement Museum, it's called Love on the Lower East Side. And it talked about the matchmakers in that early, you know, the 1910s, 1920s. One of the things that I found very early on was a reference to a wedding that was covered by the New York Times. That was the wedding of this man. He was his. He had a pickle business, like the pickle man, like in Crossing Delancey. And they called him the pickle millionaire. And his the pickle millionaire's daughter got married. And there was this New York Times article that was the most amazing article. I can send it to you, but it the, the best line was like, the smell of orange blossoms and lilies from the bouquet mingled with the scent of pickles and pickled herring. Like it was so just visual and sensual, just all the senses, sensual. I mean, like you could see it. You could, you felt like you were at this wedding and there were 2000 people in the streets on Rivington street and the police had to come to help guide the carriages and the crowds like, for the pickle millionaire's daughter's wedding. So of course I had to include, in my book, I have the pickle king. I have a man who is the pickle king and his daughter is one of the matches, but I had, you know, that was fascinating. And then I read about, it's a lot of food. I read about um, the Kanish War, which was like the Kanish War of 1916, where there were these rival Kanish stores 
one on one side of the street, one on the other. And they kept undercutting each other with prices. And then one like brought in like a polka band or something, like some big like brass band. And they kept doing all these things to try to steal customers from the other one. And to me, immediately when I read that, I just, my brain went like Romeo and Juliet. It's like the Capulets and the Montagues, this Kanish family and that Kanish family. And like, that, like what if their children fell in love? Like what's gonna happen there? So there were all of these really wonderful, very whimsical, quirky, they felt sort of magical in their own way. Anecdotes that I found that just immediately began to shape my story. And I don't know, it just sort of, those were my first, those were the two matches that initially I knew I would fit in there somehow. So then it was just a question of shaping kind of around those. Was there a piece of research, some fact or story, anecdote maybe that you wanted to include in the novel, but it didn't fit the story or had to be cut for some reason? I can't think of a specific anecdote or story, but there is always, there are always so many things that get cut because you can never, you can never include everything and you can't, you know, it can't read like a history lesson and it can't read like an encyclopedia entry. That's the beauty and the hardship of writing historical fiction. You have to have enough to make it real, to bring everything to life, but you have to weave it all in. So there's always, there's always so much on the cutting room floor. You know, there are so many things that you can't include that you want to. I feel, I'm pretty sure that every single writer of historical fiction would love to like include an extra document (laughs) in the book. (laughs) for the reader's edification, right? Because there's so much, and it hurts you to not put it in, but you can't, you know, you can't. um, Because it's just, it won't read like a story then. It'll read like something else. So it's a very, that's, that's our burden that we bear. You've been a published author since 2016. Is that correct? Yes. But your family uh, house came or debuted. So you're one of the authors that I turn to when I need advice. So I would love to take this opportunity for you to share with our wider audience. What advice do you have for authors or perhaps those like me who don't yet have an agent or a publishing contract? I think you, you really can't give up. You know, you have to keep writing. You have to find the story that speaks to you. I know that you're working on your story. It's your passion. And so I think you can't give up. You know, you have to People just have to keep querying, keep trying to make their work better, keep trying to get it to the point where, you know, someone is going to not be able to say no because it's just that good. But, but I do think writing, sitting down and writing is the first step. And a lot of people, there are so many people who will come up to, to not just to me, but so many people who I know, so many writers and ask, say that they have an idea for a book. You know, because so, of course, we so many of us have ideas for book, books, but you're never going to sell that book unless you write it. You know, people have to write it. You have to sit down and you have to write it and you have to put it on paper. And then it's sort of that's when the work really begins. Once it's down on paper, then it's the editing and getting it better and better and better. And then sending it out to people and querying those agents and, and getting to that. But, but, but a lot of people never make it to the writing it down part because there's a big... There's a big disconnect from the brain to the page. And I struggle with that all the time. I mean, I always say to my husband, I wish I could just tell people this story. Like, I wish I could just, instead of writing a book, can't I just like, I'll just, and it's not that I want to dictate a book. I don't. I just want to just tell you the story. I'll just tell you the story. Like, sit around a campfire, make some s'mores, just tell you a story. Like, why can't I just do that? Why do I have to write it all down? (laughs) 
<laughs> I love that I have that feeling all the time. I love telling people about the book and they're like, well, can I read it? And I'm like, oh no, I'm not there yet. <laughs> but let me just tell you about it. Right. Yeah. Actually, with my first book, that's how it started. For like 15 years, I told people that story. I didn't write it down for 15 years. So that, I mean, if I could carry that around for 15 years and then eventually write it, like I feel like anybody can. It's just a question of forcing yourself to do it. Authors always have the best book recommendations. So I'm curious, what books do you think we should not miss right now? So Christina McMorris has a new book out. I think it might come out today. It definitely comes out in the next, either, either it was today or it's next week. It's called The Ways We Hide, which is, she's such a great writer of historical fiction, if that's people's genre. And it's about like a, a young illusionist who ends up, like becoming, you know, helping with with the war, with the war effort as like, you know, a intelligence person, which is such a great combination of things. So I think that's a great story. Yeah. Um, there is a book that's my like one of my favorite books of the year called When Women Were Dragons by Kelly Barnhall, which is it's speculative fiction. So it's it's also historical. So it's like the 1950s and everything is like the 1950s, except that when some women get really, 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 really angry, they turn into dragons. <laughs> so, but it's it's very, there's all this feminist threads in it. And like, you know, the McCarthy hearings, like the the the, the sort of hearings um, in front of like the committee about like un-American activities and stuff. There's all that, but it's about the women turning into dragons and the government tries to cover it up. And it's just such, it's fascinating just on so many levels, but it also, it's written like to break your heart. I mean, it's so beautifully written. Actually, even the author's note, I read her author's note at the end or her acknowledgements. I wept reading this woman's acknowledgements because it, she said something so beautiful about storytelling. To be a storyteller is to just make yourself vulnerable all the time. I can't even, I, I, it's just this beautiful, beautiful thing that she says in her, in her acknowledgements. So Kelly Barnhill, if you ever listen, just know that like I wept at your acknowledgements. <laughs> That's a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah. It's just on my radar. Yeah. Yeah. And Amy, but I just read an arc of Amy Popel's new book called The Sweet Spot, which is going to come out on Valentine's Day. So that's going to be, everyone should pre-order that for their own like Valentine's Day gift. Nicola Harrison's Hotel Laguna, which I just read an arc of also. Just amazing. Yeah. That one's just, Nicola writes she writes these books. You can't put them down. I don't know how she does it. They're, they're so propulsive. They're so, it's like she writes it in this rhythm or something. And you just like, there's not an extra word. There's not an extra scene. She just has it down. And you just are flipping, flipping, flipping the pages until you're done. So that's a great, that's going to be a great story for people. Those are excellent recommendations to authors that I already know and love and two that I haven't read before and whose books weren't on my radar. So I cannot wait to read all four. I, of course, want to share how people can find you. So can you share with them your website and where you hang out on social media? Sure. My website is just my full name.com. So it's lindacohenloigman.com. And I, I do a lot on Facebook, just Linda Cohen Lugman author. And then I... I'm getting much better at Instagram. I'm really putting in, <laughs> I'm really figuring it out a lot better. That's L. Lloydman on Instagram and Twitter, Linda C. Lloydman. So I I really think Twitter is a lot of fun. I mean, I'm really not, I'm not so clever, but I, I love to read pe- what people do on Twitter. People just have the funniest threads sometimes. Rebecca Mackay, who, who wrote The Great Believers, you know, I mean, such a such an acclaimed author. 
she has the funniest, most amazing Twitter. Like she just has some great things. So there are a lot of um, people who just do great, great things on Twitter that keep me amused. <laughs> I've been loving your social media series where you're matchmaking books. I try to do matchmaking Mondays, except I keep forgetting that it's a Monday. Like yesterday, <laughs> I forgot it was the holiday weekend. So I didn't do my matchmaking Monday. I might have to just do like a matchmaking Wednesday this week. Um, I'll come, I'm come up, I'll come up with something else. I don't know, some other word, but yeah, it's fun. It, that's a really fun thing to do. It's fun to sort of think about a book and what, if you like this book, you would also like this other book. That's a really, it's kind of, cause it's sort of how so many of us think anyway, you know, like you just finished something. If you finish something by an author and that author doesn't have anything else coming down the pike, you're sort of chasing the same high, right? So it's that sort of feeling. I love that. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to talk about that we haven't covered yet? No, I don't think so. I just really hope that people will come away with this book with, you know, a real sense of joy. Um, that's, I think everybody needs a little of that right now. And so I just, I hope people feel good about it when they read it and, and that they, it brings them some happiness and some light. So that's, that's it. Yeah. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, it's like I said in the beginning, it's been far too long since we've met up in person. I hope our paths cross. All right. Good luck with For links to the books mentioned in this episode, the author's social media, and more, visit bestofwomensfiction.com. You can also see the video version of the same episode. I'd love it if you'd follow me, Ashley Hasty, on Instagram. You can also subscribe to the podcast right here. And if you enjoy it, please share with your friends.